beginning in verse 1. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he, had said, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him thirty pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we again praise you and thank you for this opportunity that you give to us to come and to worship, and especially to open your word and to uh, see the truth that it is here. We know that your word is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And so we ask, as we come to this particular passage, that your spirit would truly go forth with your word, and that it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask, O Father, for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, as we considered uh, last time, this passage of the first 16 verses of Matthew 26 contains what we might call a sandwich. It is Matthew begins the passage, the narration focused on one theme, and then he interjects something that's a little bit different, but certainly related, and then he returns to the original theme. Well, in this particular sandwich, we see that the overall theme that Matthew highlights is he's seeking to make the distinction between those who are poor in faith with one who is rich in faith. Now again, last week we considered really what we call the meat of the sandwich. That is, Mary uh, shows her great devotion to Jesus by anointing Him with expensive oil as a way to prepare Him for burial. Well, this morning we'll be considering, we may consider the bread on each end of that sandwich. Those who are poor in faith. The religious leaders on one end 
And then one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot. They're poor in faith, not only because of the evil that they, that they plot and carry out, but because they're ultimately revealed as hypocrites. That is, they're pretenders who outwardly profess faith in God, but inwardly their hearts are far, far away from Him. For the Jewish religious leaders, there's no surprise, of course, because from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, their hypocrisy has been called out, first by John the Baptist and then later by Jesus. They were supposed to be the spiritual leaders and and shepherds of the people. But not only did they place heavy burdens on the people, but they outwardly sought to live holy and righteous lives before the people, but inwardly they were consumed with pride and selfishness and self-glory. But Jesus would encounter other hypocrites, those whose hypocrisy was, was hidden, but eventually would be exposed at the appointed time. And this was one from among Jesus' closest companions. And so this becomes a warning for us to to keep in mind. Those who are poor in faith and hypocrites can truly be found anywhere. Some are easy to spot because they, they wear their hypocrisy on their sleeves. But others remain under the radar for a long time and, and we'd never suspect them. But in time... All will be revealed. It's important for us to understand these things, not so that we can kind of go out on a, on a witch hunt to flush out every uh, hypocrite from the church, but so we can carefully examine ourselves to turn away from any hypocrisy in our own lives so that on the last great day, we won't be counted among the goats and those who are poor in faith passage begins first by transitioning away from the Olivet Discourse to Jesus giving his disciples a sober reminder in verse 2. You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. These words would have been shocking to the disciples. After all, Jesus just gave a long discourse about God's uh, judgment coming upon Jerusalem and the Jews because of their rejection of Him. And, and also uh, in connection with that were the signs that would be seen throughout the ages that point to the fact that Jesus will come in power and glory at the end of the age. That He will vindicate His people and He will judge the wicked of the earth. A time that the faithful will look forward to with great hope and anticipation as Christ ushers in the fullness of His kingdom. But now, Jesus brings them crashing back down to the present reality. He's come to Jerusalem not merely to celebrate the Passover, but He's come to suffer many things and to be put to death. Even being more specific here than in previous predictions, He will die the painful and shameful death of crucifixion. Their shepherd and their master, the Messiah, the son of the living God will be put to death like a criminal. The power and glory of the kingdom would indeed come. 
But first, Jesus must be put to death to save His people from their sins. This is what He came to do. But of course, at this point, the disciples didn't fully comprehend all that. Well, there are two other things to note regarding this reminder. First, it was two days before the Passover. And so this likely means that it was late Tuesday evening or very early Wednesday morning when Jesus gives this reminder to His disciples. And it had already been a very long day. In fact, if you uh, look back, it appears as though uh, everything Matthew records from, from chapter 21, verse 23, where Jesus enters the temple in the morning and is questioned by the chief priests and the elders, all the way here through chapter 26, verse 5, and of course possibly including verses 14 through 16, all this happened on Tuesday. And so after battling the arguments of the religious leaders, after teaching the people in in parables, and then, of course, the long discourse with the disciples in the Mount of Olives, after all this, Jesus and his disciples had to be exhausted. But as Jesus warned in the discourse, they ought always to be ready and prepared. And so Jesus gives this clear warning that he will very soon be taken from them by the most violent means. And yet, Jesus, knowing full well not only what was going to happen, but also knowing when it was going to happen, two days from now, despite knowing this, Jesus didn't waver or turn away. He could have just as easily returned to Bethany and maybe gotten some rest and then headed back to Galilee in order to avoid what was coming. But he didn't. Though it would get more challenging, of course, as the time drew closer, and we'll see that, Lord willing, in a a couple weeks, Jesus remained steadfast to the call and the mission the Heavenly Father had put before him. Because he knew that victory would come through his suffering and death. And that this was God's plan for our salvation. The manner is set, that is the way he was going to die is set. The time is set, it was going to be on the Passover. And Jesus is ready. And so the disciples must also be ready. Well, Matthew then dramatically takes us from this sober reminder to a gathering of the religious leaders where the evil of their hearts begins to bear fruit in a most wicked plot. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elected, uh, the elders of the people, and uh, Matthew here, of course, is describing the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest court of the Jews. And though they assembled, this was likely, uh, because it was late at night, it was likely a, a secret meeting that would have left out those who would have been perhaps more sympathetic to, to Jesus and his ministry. And for example, we think here of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who we find out later were secret disciples. But the agenda of this secret meeting had only two items. How can they take Jesus by trickery? And how can they kill him? Now it's no surprise that their anger and animosity toward Jesus had reached this feverish pitch. From, from the very outset of his ministry, Jesus was in conflict with these religious leaders. 
But how could it get so far to the point where they would want to kill him? Well, simply, Jesus, Jesus didn't fit into their lifestyles. He came from out of nowhere and, and began publicly teaching the people. And so from the perspective of the religious leaders, Jesus was really usurping their position. He had no training and thus no right to take the position of a teacher of the people. They were smug, they were pious, and they were arrogant. But Jesus was humble, he was sincere, and he taught with authority that even the people realized was far beyond the authority of the scribes. The religious leaders believed that they were a cut above everyone else, and and they certainly made sure everyone knew it. And so they demanded honor and praise from the people. But Jesus presented as a servant of the people, one who identified with them in their weakness and sin, and who sought to bring healing and forgiveness into their lives. He regularly ate with tax collectors and sinners, and, and of course this horrified the religious leaders. Who would have never have thought to stoop so low to minister to those most in need. And so clearly Jesus didn't fit into their lifestyle. But he also didn't fit into their traditions. This was again a great point of contention between Jesus and the religious leaders. They were hypocrites, outwardly living righteous and holy lives as they meticulously followed every detail of the traditions of the elders. But inwardly, their hearts were far away from God, even as these very traditions of men covered over God's righteous law. Desiring to be honored by the people, yet behind closed doors, they devoured widows' houses. And they took advantage of those whom they were supposed to help and to lead. But Jesus called them out on this hypocrisy. And he condemned them for replacing God's law with the traditions of men. In his teaching, Jesus sought to recover the law of God so that the people would see the truth of God's law and that they would live then accordingly. And so Jesus didn't fit with their lifestyles. He didn't fit with their traditions. He didn't even fit with their religion. Though they were privileged to receive the witness and testimony of God's grace and mercy, because God had called Israel to be His special covenant people, the Jewish leaders had largely turned away from true faith and walking in fellowship with the Lord by turning toward a religion of works-based righteousness and law-keeping. They rejected the grace of God through faith, And they sought holiness and righteousness by adhering to all the rules and the regulations of their traditions. Indeed, even at this time, the religion of the temple had by and large become hollow and empty. Which is one of the reasons Jesus went in and, and cleansed the temple. But Jesus came to challenge them. That they must truly walk and live by faith. And that though they do owe sincere obedience to the Lord, the security of their salvation, and indeed the covenant that God made with them, is found not in their works, but in God's abounding grace and mercy toward undeserving sinners. And so Jesus' teaching was really a breath of fresh air. 
over these dry, dead bones of the legalistic and rigid religion of the Jews. But there was another factor that led to their coming to this point of plotting evil against Jesus. Again, Jesus continually and he openly exposed their hypocrisies to the people. And they saw him then as a growing threat to their own power and influence over the people. As Jesus grew uh, in that influence, obviously then their influence weakened. And of course, even over the past several days from this, from this point, things began to es- escalate rather quickly. It was just a few days before this that Jesus had raised a man, Lazarus, from the dead. Right, An unmistakable miracle witnessed by many, and the result was that many then believed in Jesus. But instead of, of humbling themselves and repenting of their unbelief, the religious leaders only further hardened their hearts. In fact, they not only desired then to kill Jesus, but they wanted to then kill Lazarus. I mean, here the man had just been raised from the dead, brought to new life, and they want to take it from him. Well, then two days later from that point, Jesus entered into Jerusalem with great fanfare as the people, even the little children, lined the streets and praised him as the Lord's anointed, as the promised Messiah, the son of David. And then the religious leaders took a hit in their money bags. The next day when Jesus came in and and turned over the tables of the money changers and those who were doing business in the courts of the temple. Because the religious leaders were were getting, it's part of how they got got money, was contracting and getting kickbacks from, from those selling these goods. And then of course there was the great humiliation of the events just earlier this same day on that Tuesday. When they craftily sought to to trap Jesus in His words. And yet they themselves were made out to look foolish. And then of course Jesus openly cursed them before the people with the woes of hypocrisy and calling them to repentance and rewarding them that the judgment of God was soon coming upon them. And so after all this, well, they, they had had enough. And Jesus had become a stumbling block to them in, in their own advancement of, of comfort, power, and self-glory. So Jesus had to be removed. He must be put to death. Yet with all their pent-up fury and their hatred, they came up with no clear plan. For the reality is, They've already tried on numerous occasions to trap Jesus, to turn the people against Him, to provoke Him to anger, and yet everything they've tried has failed. So they must resort to some kind of trickery and deceit. But even this path led them to few options. Besides, though they clearly wanted Jesus dead, there was a hindrance they were facing That hindrance was a great fear. Not necessarily a fear of Jesus, or even a fear of God, in that they were wanting to kill an innocent man, 
but they had a misplaced fear of the people. And this is why they determined in verse 5, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, they feared the crowd who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. The Passover was one of the three great feasts of the Jews. That, and uh, all the, the Old Testament law required that all males of age were supposed to attend. And so this meant that people from all over the region, all over the, the Mediterranean world would come. Now, many of them would know nothing about Jesus because they're in these far-off places. But obviously, those who were closer would come in greater numbers. And so there likely would be a large segment of representatives from the region of Galilee who would likely be more partial to Jesus and perhaps even believe in Him as the Messiah since He had conducted most of His ministry in that region. And the city at this time... Because you had all these people coming into the city. The city would be teeming with faithful Jews and far surpassing the normal population. And so this added to their fear. Because any attempt to seize Jesus would be sure to cause an uproar. And then the Roman authorities were often on high alert during, during these feast times. Because of the potential that they always saw for the Jews to uh, rise up against him. And there was always certainly that threat. And so the religious leaders wanted to wait until after the feast. After people had started to go home to put a plan in place to take Jesus and kill him. They were afraid of the Romans. And they were afraid of what the people might do. But this fear was greatly misplaced. Though it certainly was a potential reality that tensions could flare and the Romans would respond with unmerciful force, the religious leaders only feared those who could kill the body but were unable to kill the soul. Instead, as Jesus warned in Matthew 10, verse 28, they ought to fear him who was able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So even this revealed their hypocrisy. They had no fear of God, no fear of His justice, of His wrath, or His holiness, as they desired with all their hearts to kill His only begotten Son. The religious leaders wanted to do this then in secret, to avoid a public disaster as much as possible. That was their plan. That was the only part of the plan that they had agreed upon. But God, the very God whom they didn't fear, God had another plan. And it would be God's plan that sovereignly prevailed even over this sinful plot. For God had appointed that salvation would come to His people at the Passover. The very feast that celebrated how He had delivered the Israelites out of slavery and bondage in Egypt would be the time that he would secure deliverance from the bondage of sin and death for his people. The Sanhedrin wanted to put it off till the crowds were gone. But God was going to make it so that they would have an opportunity that they could not pass up so that it would happen. That they would have to kill Jesus at the time God had appointed not according to their fearful planning. 
But how? Again, they had already tried so many approaches. Where would they find the weakness to expose in order to bring Jesus down once and for all? Well, they wouldn't need to find the weakness because the weakness found them. Now, after highlighting the rich in faith, again, by inserting that story of Mary anointing Jesus in verses 6 through 13, verse 14, we read this. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Now it's likely that perhaps in their uh, deceivance when the, the chief priests had applauded this, that they maybe sent out secret messengers to in the back, back highways and where the lowly hangouts, and the wicked, and saying, we're looking for a way to trap this Jesus. Somehow, maybe Judas didn't know they were looking. Maybe he just went to them because he did know that they were opposed to him. However it happened, this becomes very striking. That one of Jesus' very own disciples, one of his closest companions who traveled everywhere with him, went to the chief priests and made a plan to betray him. Now we may wonder, what brought Judas to this point? And how could one so close be exposed not only as a hypocrite and pretender of faith, but as a traitor? Now, the gospel writers really don't give us any detail about how Judas was called to be a disciple, as we have with, for example, James and John, or or Peter, Andrew, and Matthew. Those we have kind of an account of how Jesus called them. But Judas and the rest of the disciples, we don't know specifically, but what we do know is that Judas was one of the twelve, and he called to be a close disciple. Indeed, not only does he appear each time the twelve are listed, but for example, as Mark highlights, it was Jesus himself who appointed the twelve. So it was Jesus himself who would have called Judas to leave everything he had and to follow after him, even as he had done with the other disciples. And it was Judas, along with the other eleven, who was privileged to hear all the teaching of Jesus. Right? Not just the public teaching, but even the private teaching. He heard the explanation, for example, of many of the parables that were not given to the people in general. And of course, he had a front row seat to all the great miracles that Jesus did. When Jesus healed the blind, the lame, the leprous, when he cast out demons and even raised the dead. Judas was there. And not only this, but Judas, along with the eleven, also received power and authority from Jesus to do the very same kinds of miracles when Jesus sent the twelve out, two by two. Judas was one who proclaimed the gospel. And as we considered last time, Judas had been given the responsibility of of being the treasurer of the twelve. He was entrusted with the money box which was used to, to buy food and supplies and minister to the needs of the poor. So Judas certainly appeared trustworthy. On the outside, 
He seemed like he was a devoted disciple. So what happened? Well, there likely were many factors at play. One of which we considered last time, and likely the reason Matthew again inserts that account about uh, Mary anointing Jesus with that expensive oil. And he asserts that account between the plotting of the, the Sanhedrin and Judas then approaching them. Well, how, how do you get from point A to point B? Well, let me insert this account to further explain. We remember that that anointing actually took place several days before, likely on Saturday evening when Jesus was in Bethany on the eve of the triumphal entry. And there arose a complaint among the disciples about the waste Mary made of this very expensive oil. And and John tells us that it was Judas who led that criticism. Judas was the one who asserted that the oil could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. Now that certainly was a noble idea. But then John adds this editorial commentary. John 12 verse 6, he said this, he said, meaning Judas... Not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So Judas was a thief. Without the knowledge of the others, Judas would steal from them. Every time they put something in that money box, Judas would take it. Now we don't know how long he was doing this, but it certainly indicates that evil was already in his heart. That he was poor in spirit, that he was a pretender, that he was a hypocrite long before he took action to betray Jesus. And it seems as though that incident with Mary and the oil so angered Judas. Right again, we talked about this last time, that, that he was missing out on, he was so angry, because not because he cared for the poor, but he was missing out on, on the opportunity to steal 300 denarii, a whole year's wage. And so that's likely what brought Judas to the brink. Especially when Jesus didn't side with him. He didn't say, oh Judas, that's a great idea, you know Mary, you shouldn't have done this, we, you know, this was a, a waste. No, Jesus stood up for Mary and He commended her for her faith and devotion. And so Judas was angered greatly, indignant. Now some often speculate that Judas was also inclined to zealotry and was perhaps following Jesus because he thought Jesus was a political Messiah. And certainly many of the people who followed Jesus um, had that same, very same uh, perspective. They believed that Jesus would lead the people in a revolution against the Romans and take up arms and overthrow the oppressors of Israel. But as Jesus continued to talk about His coming suffering and death, and that His kingdom wouldn't be ushered in until the end of the age... Well, Judas may have become disillusioned with Jesus' ministry goals and decided to turn against him. Again, that's a more speculation. We don't know for sure. There's not really any clear evidence about that. But it could, certainly could be a possibility. Well, then Luke, in his accounts, gives another influential factor. Luke 22, verse 3. 
That as the religious leaders conspired against Jesus, seemingly at the very same time, Luke says, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Now this doesn't necessarily mean that Judas became possessed by Satan and he could then excuse himself, well, the devil made me do it. No, that doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Because it could simply mean that he gave in to the temptation that Satan had placed before him. And this was perhaps not the first time that maybe he had resisted before. But now, in conjunction with the way events seem to be unfolding, Judas found no reason to resist that temptation any further. Indeed, as we said, he was already living as a hypocrite among the twelve. His heart was primed for Satan's work. But there's another key factor in leading Judas to betray Jesus. And that is God's sovereign plan to redeem His people from their sins. Showing us once again that God is able even to use the sinful actions of man to accomplish His will and purpose. For in order for salvation to be accomplished, we know that Jesus, the Son of God, had to suffer greatly. And part of that suffering involved enduring the betrayal of a close friend. Indeed, even that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, Judas was appointed to this role. And we find this, for example, prophesied about in Psalm 55, uh, verses 12-14. through For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in the throng. Prophesying about betrayal. It's prophesying about exactly what's happening here. Again, reminding us that these are the words of the psalm are ultimately the words of Jesus. Now, truly, this is a great mystery when we consider the interface between God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. And Lord willing, we'll consider that uh, in more detail in a couple weeks when we get to the actual point where Judas betrays Jesus. But here we need to remember these things. Judas went willingly to the chief priests. They didn't go find him. And when he came, they didn't try to persuade him. He went to them and he offered to them a way to trap Jesus. We also remember that Judas was stricken with greed. He was a thief. And he was also likely filled with pride, envy, and whatever else may have been involved. Even though he gave clear evidence of of doing many good works outwardly, inwardly, he was living according to his sin nature. Even as a professed disciple of Jesus, Judas was poor in faith. 
He was a hypocrite. And he was like the seed that was sown among the thorns that eventually got choked out by the cares and the concerns of this world. In other words, he was not a true spiritual disciple of Jesus, even though he walked among them as one. But God used his sinful actions to accomplish his great plan and purpose for our salvation. And what do they offer Judas for this deceit and treachery? 30 pieces of silver. Now that may seem like a lot, but really it wasn't that much at all. And the Old Testament law in Exodus 21 verse 32 was the appointed payment that if a man's ox gored his neighbor's servant to death, then that neighbor that owned the ox had to pay restitution to his neighbor because he lost a servant. And the restitution amount was 30 pieces of silver. It was the price of a slave. Certainly Judas must have been desperate for money to betray Jesus for so little. And of course, from the perspective of the religious leaders, well, they must have felt that this was a providential godsend. Right? Wow! Here we're we're pulling our hair out trying to figure out how we're going to trap this guy and kill him. Here comes one of his own disciples. This is awesome. Thank you, Lord. And yet, obviously they didn't realize just how true that was. They were likely amazed and delighted that a close follower of Jesus on hire, that they would surely gain the victory over Jesus and bring Him to ruin once and for all. That He would be out of their way. And they wouldn't have to worry about Him again. And even for Satan, this becomes an opportune time for Satan himself to strike at the heel of the Son of God. Looking to deal the final blow and once and for all disrupt God's glorious plan. That's always been Satan's purpose from the beginning is to disrupt God's plan. He did it with creation when he tempted Adam and Eve to sin and brought sin into the world into this everything that was good in the world. And Satan corrupted it by bringing in that sin and temptation. Well, now he has the opportunity to disrupt God's great plan to save His people and to defeat the very Son of God. But not even Satan was aware that all these things that were happening, all these things were according to God's perfect plan and purpose. And in the end, it would be Jesus who would have the victory, not only for himself, but especially for us and our salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, what can we glean from this treacherous plot of betrayal and murder by those who are poor in faith? Well, first, it should be a caution to us, to each and every one of us, To examine our own hearts and chase away any uh, hypocrisy or falsehood from our lives. As we realize that it's not necessarily about what you do or what you say, 
Though certainly those things are important ways to give evidence of true faith. But ultimately, it's about believing and resting in the grace of God for your salvation. That will separate you as either one who is rich in faith or who is poor in faith on that last great day, the day of judgment. We may be able to fool others, but God alone truly knows our hearts, whether we're being hypocrites and pretenders or whether we're truly His. And secondly, we should be reminded again of God's perfect sovereign plan. Now we have the great benefit of standing on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. right? Knowing that His betrayal by Judas and, and the murder by the chief priests and the Romans was not a victory for Satan and not a victory for the, His minions of evil, but it was a great victory for those who trust and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Jesus secured the victory over sin and death by rising from the dead on the third day, so that we might have our salvation secured. His victory became our victory. And for this, we ought to rejoice and give thanks to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for that very thing. For the salvation that you have secured for us. That you won for us. Through Jesus Christ your only begotten son. Who had to suffer and die on the cross. To pay the penalty for our sins. Because we were dead in our sins and transgressions. And we were from the beginning condemned. To a just judgment of eternal wrath and condemnation in hell. And yet you saved us. You had mercy upon us. You had grace upon us. And delivered us through Jesus Christ. By enabling Christ to pay the penalty that we only deserved. This painful and shameful death of the cross. Christ endured for us and for our sins. So that we might now become the righteousness of God in Him. That we might have peace and reconciliation with you, our Creator. That we might live according to your truth, even as we were created to live. Father, we praise you and thank you for such a great and glorious salvation. And yet we know the temptations of the evil one are all around. And even as we would examine our own hearts... We pray, Lord, that you would expose, even within our own hearts, any hypocrisy, any uh, unconfessed sin that we have committed against you that is keeping us from true fellowship with you, that is hindering our relationship and perhaps even hindering our entrance into your glorious kingdom at the end of the age. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would expose those things in our hearts and our lives. That we would confess them before you. And that you would wash us and cleanse us from those sins. Drawing us ever so closer to yourself. We praise you and thank you, Lord. For the the great news, the good news that the gospel is. 
And yet there's still things that we don't, don't fully understand. We don't fully understand your, how your sovereignty interacts with our responsibility. But we know that we were born sinners. Even as Judas was born a sinner. And he hid his sin from others. And yet his heart was not right. Even though he walked with Jesus and with the other disciples. But in due time... As all hypocrites are, they are exposed. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would, again, help us to uh, turn away from that hypocrisy, but also to be a faithful witness to others. Even many others who may think that they are safe, that they're okay, because they go to church, because they do good things, and yet their hearts are far, far away from you. Father, may we be faithful to proclaim the gospel to them, That they might come to know the truth. And that they might seek you out in true and sincere faith. So we pray for your blessing in these things. We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.